This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hi, everyone. My name is Brant, and thank you for tuning in to the uh, episode today. We've got a very special guest. We've got uh, Wesley Johnson. Wesley is an emeritus professor of business history at BYU. He received his BA from Harvard and his master's and doctorate from Columbia University. He served as the director of the graduate public history program at the University of California, the Family and Community History Center at BYU, and one of the founders of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, and also has been working extensively for the past couple of decades, at least, on the out-migration project for Mormons. So we're going to get into that a little bit. Uh, so we're joined by uh, Wes. Wes, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. No, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And uh, we're also joined by his son, George. George actually is in my ward here in the uh, Detroit area and was actually the one who told me I might be interested in this. So, George, thanks for coming on and, and helping me out coordinating all this and everything. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Brent. Thank you. Uh, so, Wes, let's start a little bit. Uh, you know, you have this long storied history that I've been interested in for a while, uh, but I'm always interested in what, what started it. So what, for you, really drew you to Mormon studies, and, and what, was your, what was your upbringing like that, that kind of uh, planted those seeds? Well, let's go to the uh, upbringing. Um, I guess there's one thing, as, as a background, uh, a light motive, you might say, to my life, and I'm sure to many, many other people of LDS extraction, is that I grew up very proud of the history of my family being with the prophets since the very early days. And um, coming across the country, my great-grandfather, Benjamin Johnson, uh, joined the church in about 19... I'm sorry, in uh, 1833, uh, went to Kirkland, then went to Missouri, went to Nauvoo, went to Salt Lake, bought a big piece of property that was going you know, to put him on the map. Then Brigham Young said, I'm going to send you down to Arizona to colonize. So he, he did that. <laughs> Fortunately, that piece of property that he had to sell was, it was, it was rather built Union Station. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, so he missed a, a gold, uh, gold, if so oh, yeah. say, gold <laughs> opportunity. Anyway, then, so, so that's why my family wound up in Arizona, in Mesa and Phoenix, uh, after this long hegira coming clear across the country. And so that, that story of that exodus of my family became part of a, a legendary part of, of, of our upbringing and my upbringing to be very proud of this. So that's, that's something that I think has always been a, a ter- terrifically important to me to keep me uh, centered in the, in the faith. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I've heard stories and read manuscripts and books about what the, my forebears had to go through to keep to keep their testimonies and to keep the to help the church move forward. Okay, so that's that's kind of a that's kind of a, a background. Um, I grew up in Mesa, uh, where my uh, family lived, and uh, probably a turning point for me was um, when I was um, when I was eight. We moved to Phoenix. And that, that was quite a revelation because Mesa was a, was a sunny, nice little village in those days, three or 4,000 people. 
everybody in town was a member of the church, and I felt very comfortable and very protected there. <laughs> and suddenly I moved to Phoenix, and there were exactly two other Mormons in my school. But it was a wonderful experience. I, I got to meet Mexicans. I got to meet Jews. I got to meet Greek Orthodox people. In other words, I suddenly found a wider world, and, and that was something that, that was really, really very uh, exciting to me. In the third grade, I met a fellow named Fred Mendelson, who was Jewish. He and I became fast friends, went to grade school together, went to high school together, went to Harvard together. He today is a noted psychiatrist on Park Avenue in New York. Uh, it's a, a case where boyhood friends, uh, we both uh, succeeded in what we wanted to do, and it got me very interested in other people's. And I learned a lot from Fred about the the obstacles that, that, that faced a young Jewish person like himself. Did, uh, did you find any uh, similarities between some of the obstacles that he went through as a Jewish person and you went through as a Mormon? Or was that uh, were Mormons still pretty highly thought of within the Arizona area? No. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, the answer is yes and no. Mm. Um, the uh, I think that luckily for him, there weren't that many Jews in Phoenix, and the Jews who did come there were running big department stores and jewelry stores. And so they had a pretty affluent lifestyle, and hence how were highly regarded by the business community and so forth mm. in, in, uh, in, in, in Phoenix. And so I, my impression is that there was very little prejudice. Uh, Jews belonged to the country club. Most cities in the USA, Jews did not belong to the country club. <laughs> Hmm. And uh, so uh, there were there were similarities and obstacles. I didn't really understand a lot of the opposition and uh, uh, fear of, of Mormons until I left Phoenix, hmm. because Phoenix was a very tolerant community uh, and a very small Mormon community. Yeah, well, uh, when I was there, we had one stake. Mm-hmm. Fifty years later, there had there were there were fifty-five sticks in Phoenix. The so Phoenix morphed from a village like Mesa to a big city. And and, and around around what time frame was this? Nineteen uh, forty, I went to I went to Phoenix. Nineteen fifty, I graduated from high school, and one year later, I found myself at Harvard. Uh, Fred Mendelson and I both. <laughs> it sounds crazy. We sent away for catalogs on some of the. the Ten best schools in the United States. We read the catalogs and read read what they offered and so forth. And we both concluded that Harvard spoke to our interest, especially of the way in which they encourage students to have organizations and the students to, to do a lot of things on their own. We thought that was great. Let me and let me. So that's why we applied to Harvard, and that's the reason we went there. Let me ask you a, a history question, um, because it seems like now when when most uh, LDS youth are, are looking at colleges, they're going to look e- either at LDS universities or they're going to look at universities in the Utah area. What drew you to Harvard? Well, two questions. First of all, was that always the case historically, as in was it always commonplace for LDS kids during during when you were growing up to go to LDS universities is the first question. And the second question no. is what drew no. you to, to Harvard? No, no, it was not. Uh, it, was, it was very interesting. Uh, I was admitted to Harvard and uh, that spring, and then we, my father, as a bishop, we came up 
your conference here uh, for, for uh, the uh, spring conference. And we went to see my old dad's uh, great buddy, great friend from BYU days. He went to BYU, and this gentleman, whose name was Mr. Bushman, Ted Bushman, had also been at BYU, and he and my dad were bosom buddies. And uh, one thing came out. Uh, my dad said, well, my son uh, is not going to go to BYU. He's going to go to Harvard. And Ted Bushman said, that's fantastic. I have a son, Ted, who's there in his first year. <laughs> so Richard Bushman, who later became, has become a very famous historian, and I were a great pals at Harvard. I was just going to ask if that was the uh, the same Bushman. Oh, yes. <laughs> very definitely. Uh, hey, Dad. Absolutely. Uh, so, hey, Dad, this is uh, George. I just wanted to, to throw in something there. So you would have then been accepted to Harvard, and as I understand it, your first year you decided um, that BYU might be a little bit more interesting than Harvard. Tell, talk a little bit about that. This is something very interesting. Uh, and towards the end of summer, after I graduated from high school, I began to think about the fact that both my parents, my grandparents, my uncles, my cousins, I mean, extended family were all graduates of BYU. Mm. I said to myself, I really need to, to, to go to BYU at least for one year to find out what the church is all about, because the church was very small in Arizona at that time, and and, and to find out what, what it's really like to be a Mormon. And so I wrote a very imperious letter <laughs> already saying, I'm very sorry, I can't attend your university, so I've decided to go to BYU to find out more about my family and my heritage and find out how I fit into this whole, the country and the universe and so forth. And they were very polite, but Kurt was saying, well, contact us when you're ready. <laughs> and I told that story to several of my friends who were at Harvard at the time, and they said, Wesley, you've committed suicide. Are you insane? I said, no, I'm just being honest. They said, well, you'll never get in. Well, uh, later on, during that first year at BYU, I wrote and said, I'd like to come back now. I've had the experience of getting to know people here at BYU, getting to know other Mormons, and figuring out exactly where I fit into this Mormon community. I was said, fine, we would be glad to have you come back. And so next fall, I, I went back to Harvard. So, so, one, so tell me one about... One reason I chose Harvard, though, too, besides the fact that, that my Jewish friend and I had decided it was the best place to go, is is that I, uh, in high school, uh, had founded, with my friend Fred Mendelson, the two of us, had founded a independent news news publication, a, news, a newsletter that came out every month that talked about what was going on in Phoenix from uh, high schools from a student's point of view. Uh, we did that for three years. It was mailed every month. We mailed every issue on time. And that was a, a wonderful experience. We we uh, had the blessing of the principal, of some of our teachers, because we learned how to discuss difficult topics and yet to do it in a way that wasn't threatening to, this, to the school board or to the superintendent of schools. I look back on that as... <laughs> One of the great triumphs of my of my young life, but it gave me a wit for for publications. And say, hence, when I went to Harvard, the first thing I did was to go down and find out about when the um, 
when the uh, I guess you might say the, uh, the not the trial we're going to start for the lampoon, and so uh, a good friend of mine, um, a good friend Jack Limpert, L-I-M-P-E-R-T, and I both went down and tried out for the lampoon, and uh, and within several years, like we were basically in control of the lampoon. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the guys that we both worked with, he was ahead of us in school, but we became good friends with John Updike and Novos. And even though I think in later years we didn't, neither one of us, Jack or myself, particularly approved of some of the subject matter that John wrote about, John was one of the most brilliant, brilliant people I've ever met, and I learned a great deal from him. And so that was, that was part of my Harvard experience, and certainly... The high school newsletter and the Harvard Lampoon gave me a foundation later on for starting dialogue. So, right, a very sound foundation. So let me let me back up a little bit before we get to there. Um, so you had mentioned that a lot of people thought that it would be that you would have no chance to go from Harvard to BYU and then get back into Harvard. Um, and, 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 That's and right. And, and you, I, had, I at least. Uh, uh, three people who were at Harvard said you'll never you'll never make it. Which is surprising uh, to me because I would assume that Harvard would think if you've left, then there's no way you're going to come back. Um, but you said that when you were at BYU, you you had had your Mormon experience, for lack of a better term. So, what was it that happened at BYU that you could say, okay, I've done this, I, I feel good, and now I can go back to Harvard? Like, what was it that drew you back, and then what was it that made you feel like it was uh, accomplished? Like you okay. could say, okay, I've done it now. I had, I essentially, I had a great time at BYU. They had social units in those days, and I was a bricker, which was the oldest of all the social units. And uh, there are lifelong friends like Dallin Oaks uh, and Lauren Dunn, who were in the same pledge class of brickers at the BYU that I was in. So going to BYU gave me a chance to meet many people who later became leaders leaders in the church. Um, as time went on, I began to realize I was not getting a very good education, and BYU seemed more like a big high school. And I really began to, to, to understand that if I were going to get a, a really a education, I get a, you know, really a tough education, I mean, it required a lot of work, I was going to have to go some other place. And so I thought about going to the University of Arizona, which is where some LDS, not a lot, but some LDS people went to our state university in Arizona. And, um, and I thought about that, but and I thought, well, I'm going to write Harvard, you know, who knows, maybe they will take me. And they did. And I personally think one of the reasons they took me is because the gentleman who was head of the School of Education who interviewed me in Phoenix a year before to go to Harvard was very impressed that I had founded and was running an independent magazine newspaper for three years in Phoenix that was circulated throughout the city to high school students, and uh, he was very impressed with that. So I believe that that may have been one of the reasons they took me, is because uh, they felt I was kind of an independent guy who was... Let me just clarify one thing, Dad, um, and that is is that <clears throat> in terms of a timeline... You were accepted to Harvard, but because of your experience of visiting uh, Bushman, the summer before you were going to go to Harvard, you then deferred. You didn't actually go to Harvard first and then stop and go to BYU. You, 
you were accepted to Harvard and then asked them to be able to apply for BYU. And as I remember what you had said, um, that you actually were um, – uh, that they actually let you go uh, with the understanding that you would be coming back later. And, and, and that isn't the first time that you put off Harvard. The second time was, was when you did your mission. Maybe I'm jumping ahead there, but I wanted to just point that well, out. Well, yeah, no, I didn't put them off. Harvard is, very, is a very, very, everybody thinks it is a high and mighty conservative place. It's a very, when you get down to it, it's really a very friendly place. And my, um, um, at that time, many people my age wanted to go on a mission. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't, they weren't, no missionaries were being sent out because of the Korean War. Of course, I had a deferment for the Korean War. That's why I was still in college. Um, fast forward a couple of years, I was at Harvard, and I got a phone call one day from my dad. He said, Wes, they just lifted a ban on missionaries. Uh, the draft board will allow, uh, allow, uh, Mormon young Mormon men to go on a mission. I said, well, that's great. I, for future reference, I said, that's, that's neat for me. Oh, he said, not for future reference. He said, uh, you should plan on uh, going uh, next um, next fall. And I said, are you a uh, dad? Are you crazy? That's my senior year at Harvard. You want me to leave my senior year at Harvard to go on a mission? And he said, well, what's more important, your social life at Harvard or to go on a mission? And I said, well, I, I guess you're right. Also, there's a subtlety here. My father was my bishop. Mm, so you couldn't get away from it then? No, no, no. <laughs> but uh, my friends at Harvard were, were dumbfounded that I was not going to be there for the senior year because, you know, that's when all the fun really takes place when you're a senior. And was that the traditional... Yeah, and I think, they, I think they respected me for what I was going to be doing. I, and I, I, uh, I think that at first some of them thought I was crazy, but at the time I left and... I explained what I was going to be doing. They, uh, I think, really respected me. And was was that the traditional twenty-four uh, month mission at the time, or were were the requirements no, more? No, it was a thirty-month mission. Oh, really? So it was two and a half years. Two and a half years, and Harvard said, "When you get through, come back." I I I, I could cram a lot of courses together into six months, into one semester, and you can graduate. And the thing I'm very proud of, I came back after two and a half years. I had not yet taken my general exams to finish my major field, which was history. I had to get all my notes and books and so forth that I'd had to take the general exams before I left. And in the space of about three weeks, I crashed crashed program to read all my notes from all my classes, all this stuff, and get ready for the general exams. And not only did I pass the general exams, but they gave me honors. So I was able to graduate. Even though I'd been gone for two and a half years, I was able to graduate from Harvard with honors. Let me let me ask you about the the mission culture at the time, because now, especially now that the age change, missionaries can go out as young as 18, sisters can go out as young as 19. That wasn't the case, though, when, when you were thinking about a mission, because if I remember... People serve mission at all different times, isn't that correct? Yes. Um, well, there were rules, but the, but uh, but but yeah, there's, there was more uh, flexibility. I mean, I didn't go until I was 21 because I I I I, uh, I could I couldn't go because of the Korean War. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, I was I was 
But it, it, I mean, from my point of view, it worked out very well. I mean, you can imagine my first couple of weeks hearing about my mission and all my friends saying, you're going to miss the great big parties and big dances and all these things. It already has a very rich social life. I was going to miss all that. But, you know, I, uh, I realized that that was a very short-sighted sort of thing, and that I'd been lucky to be here. I mean, so what? I, I forgot about it and uh, went on and did my thing. Where did you go on your mission? France. Mm. And was it always... That was, a, that was a turning point because I had been studying French history uh, for my undergraduate major. Mm. And uh, in France, I was very fascinated by reading French history. We had a mission president who encouraged us to do extra reading and to go to museums and, and, and to become acquainted with the cultural life of France. He said, these people are not going to have any respect for you unless you know about their history and what they've been doing. So all of you, you've got to learn about France. So I took that seriously, and I set for my goal to study the France in the 18th century, the period just before the French Revolution, the period when newspapers and magazines began to appear that criticized the king, that criticized the old regime, and yet they were written in such a way that most of these guys never got slapped into the Bastille or the big prisons uh, because they worded things so carefully that they, they weren't they weren't going in jail. And I really got a kick out of reading all this stuff. And so that is one reason why later on in my life I wanted to do something like that. Uh, in this case, it would, with dialogue, it wouldn't be the French government, the French king, but it would be the church. But both of them are similar in the sense they are both highly centralized organizations. It's interesting that your your mission president really encouraged you to go and experience the culture, because oh, yeah. you know I, I served my mission in South Korea, and I, I think that's very true. They you know you really had to show that you were interested in them as a people and not just there as a as a project, uh, because right. we had the same thing. But I would also say yeah, that good for you, good for you. But I would also say that it's changed a little bit in the fact that it, it feels like we need to be making sure that. You know everything we're doing is somewhat missionary related, and so doing things like museums and reading books on on the history of the country is is maybe de-emphasized. I think that helped more than it would hurt things. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I would I would agree. And in my case, it, it helped me uh, develop my persona in a sense that it played right into his interest in magazines and publications and publications, especially that were being put out of time, despite the suspicion of the central regime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, I began collecting, during my mission, examples of intellectual journals. France is the place that really invented the intellectual journal. And so I came home with a trunk full of in, in the, in different kinds of journals. Mm. Uh, journals of history, of political science, of literature, of anthropology, you know, the whole thing. This is a personal collection I wanted to come home with. So, um, so my mission was uh, was a formative, very formative period of my life that prepared me for for this uh, thing. I had been at uh, so finally come back to uh, I, I graduate from uh, from Harvard. Well, sorry, I, I graduate from Harvard. I, I, I come back now to the country. My mission's over. I, I go back and do the six months thing and sit the face of Harvard. And the question is, what are you going to do now? Well, my old buddies, Richard, Richard Bushman and several other people, 
had decided to go on and do their doctorates in, in history at Harvard. And I went to see them at a famous dinner, and I said, gentlemen, uh, I'm, I appreciate you welcoming me back to Harvard, but guess what? I'm not going to come here. What? What? You're not coming back to Harvard? Well, you're giving up history? I said, no, I'm not giving up history, but I've decided to leave American history and do European history. And frankly, I said, Columbia is the place to study European history. Mm. And I've had the blessing of several of our friends here, professors here, who think that's what I should do. So I went to Columbia. And that, of course, was great because I'd lived in Paris and now I was living in New York and uh, living to probably the two most, aside from London, two most intellectually viable cities in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you learn a lot and you, you know, you read the New York Times every day or Paris, you read Le Monde. And my uh, mission said, sure, go ahead and read the newspaper and improve your French. So I did. <laughs> so, okay, now l- l- let me um, stop for a moment and say then that meanwhile I had uh, decided to go to Columbia. I, I got admitted. And my first year, I studied with a man named Walter Dorn, D-O-R-N, who was a very famous German historian. And he was a specialist on the 18th century, which I wanted to study. And he encouraged me to do my master's thesis on Paris in the 18th century. And I studied three people who were bourgeois people who were shall we say, just, uh, they weren't the revolutionaries that stormed the Bastille, but they were the people one generation before who were publishing pamphlets and and publishing leaflets. One of them was a woman, Madame Geoffrin, who held a salon, and she made this popular where women especially could host a salon and invite maybe 15 or 20 intellectuals and they would sit there and talk about ideas and so forth. Because so many distinguished people were invited to these things, uh, and people didn't get a mind their P's and Q's, but the, um, the old regime, the, the king's people never interfered with the, with the, with the salons. So I was studying all this, studying how did these people able to make criticism or to discuss all these problems they were having in the monarchy, Always and yet do it in such a way that they weren't clamped in jail. That was really a, a a fantastic lesson for me, because I must say that many people said, "Well, Wesley, you're you're doing this thing in dialogue. You're going to get excommunicated. You're going to do this and that." I never had a phone call. I never had a letter. I never had an interview with anybody about my my activity in dialogue. But but there was concern about it, though. Well, there was concern about it, but nobody called me in to be uh, be concerned about it. And when I came here to be uh, interviewed to become a professor at BYU and to leave the University of California, I was never asked to justify or even discuss why I was one of the founders of Dialogue. That never happened. There, there have been some pretty high-profile individuals involved in disciplinary courts recently yeah, it's it's interesting to hear that that even during during your time when it seemed like a, a free flow of Mormon thought was a little more uh, accepted or or it it happened a little bit more that those same 
some people had those same concerns, but no action was taken against you, whereas some other individuals, they might be taking it. I'm just really interested in, in how it seems like there's been a, a bit of a shift from, yes. for, for example, I don't know if someone could start their own version of dialogue in 2014. I, I, I don't think so either. Uh, they might, but I don't, I don't think so. But then again, I would also say that your experience in Arizona and your experience in France probably led you to be able to at least articulate some of those things, kind of like what you were talking about, articulating intellectual discussions that wouldn't seem threatening, threatening. Or, or disparaging or things like that. I think so. I, 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 uh, I was certainly, my wife was always, uh, some night we're going to get a phone call at some point. It's going to be only so and so, and you're going to come to Salt Lake tomorrow. <laughs> but I, but it, <laughs> she lived in fear of this, but, but it never happened. I'll tell you one reason is that uh, the lightning rod in dialogue with Gene England. Mm. And did, did you uh, know? Did you know Gene very well? Well, we were the co-founders of dialogue. So I would assume you did. I yeah, Gene and I were the co-founders. We had other people helping us. We were the first. We were the co-editors for the first six years. If co-editors for the first six years, and we both had a role to play. He and I were extremely different people. And yet we never had an argument about what we were going to do. We, mm. we always talked, sorry, a difference of opinion, we talked it out. And it was one of the most wonderful relationships I've ever had with a person, with, a person, with an enterprise that was at, 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 at the least, you can say, it was, a, it was a rocky enterprise. And yet we never had any arguments. We never, we always came to a meeting of the mind. Well, let me let me ask you. So it sounds like you and Richard Bushman knew each other previous to Dialogue, and it sounds like you and Dallin H. That's Oaks. How, that's how we that's how we got him to be on our board board of editors because of, of my friendship with him. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, if if memory serves, Dallin H. Oaks was was part of that original group too, wasn't he? Yeah, and that's because he and I were in the same social unit at uh, BYU together. So, so I can see how those those uh, uh, social circles begin. How how did you meet uh, Gene England? How, what what was behind that? That's an interesting short story. I lived in New York for several years, got my PhD, went on the market to um, get a job. I was interviewed by Berkeley. I was interviewed by Tulane. I was interviewed uh, oh in Northwestern in Chicago, at the University of Pennsylvania. I was very difficult to decide where I should go for this first job, and uh, Stanford happened to be one of the schools interviewed me, and I happened to be, after I finished after I finished uh, Columbia, I technically had not finished writing my dissertation, so I was able to get a one-year grant to go to Stanford and be a fellow at the Hoover Institution Library to enable me to pull all my materials together for my, uh, for my dissertation, because I'd, I'd had a three-year Ford grant to spend a year and a half in Paris and then a year and a half in Africa. And I was writing about the ways that the Africans were able to win independence from the French colonial system. A year and a half in France, a year and a half, half in and, uh, Africa. So I think wisely the, the powers that be offered me a, a, a four-year fellowship at Hoover Institution. And that was great because I happened to be there <laughs> When Stanford decided that they, uh, I, I was being marketed as a European slash African specialist, and they wanted someone to 
teach about Africa. And so I was interviewed, and uh, I got the job. It wasn't a permanent job, but it was a uh, job for it was, it was a six-year six-year job. And that was great. That would give me time to finish my dissertation and give me time to get some writings out and so forth. So, so that worked out very well. So that's why I was at Stanford. And the third month I was at Stanford, my friend Paul Salisbury from Salt Lake City, who was a Stanford graduate, came into by now a, a mission companion of mine and he in, that, in, in France. And now Paul Salisbury was uh, in Salt Lake as an architect. He flew into, he, he would fly into Santa, to uh, Stanford from time to time to visit his old friend. One afternoon, we sat out on the lawn in, in the quad of Stanford, a picturesque place, and we were ruminating and talking about things. And uh, uh, we got talking about things. I showed him some of the journals that I back with me from overseas and so forth. And, and Paul was a very bright, connoisseur type of guy. He knew a great deal about French culture. He knew a great deal about publishing and so forth. And he and I both said, you know, wouldn't it be great? It's really time that we have some kind of independent publication in the Mormon community, something really that looks, looks, solid, looks like these some of these French journals, beautifully designed, you know, really not not just kind of some amateur things that some people are trying to put out. Because there were some places, like Wisconsin, and I don't know, two or three places that were trying to get out newsletters and so forth. But they they all looked very, very, very amateurish. Paul was staying there for a couple of weeks on taking vacation. And one of our friends said, I came and said to Paul and me, uh, uh, hey, you guys, I, 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 I hear you're talking about doing a journal. What, are you going to work with Gene England? We said, who's Gene England? Oh, he's a guy here who's uh, getting his, his PhD in English, and he's quite a guy, and he's got a lot of ideas. You, you really should cut him in on this if you're going to do it, because he, he's, he's great. So we said, well, okay, we, we didn't know anything about it. <laughs> you say, he wants to start a journal here, too? And they said, yeah. I said, well, I guess if it's a good idea is in the air, it tends to spread. So let me let me ask you about that good idea. It, it seemed like so it wasn't just you; it was a lot of people that were saying, "Yeah, let let's do this." What was going on in the? I don't know how to phrase it, but but what was going on in the environment that that made you and others feel like we need an independent journal out there? Or because was it just there, there, because the civil rights movement was going on, the war was going on, there was no place to express a point of view. Mormon magazines were strictly a rehab, repeat the talks of general authorities. Once in a while they had a, a, a non-general authority to write an article. There was no place in the Mormon community to express yourself. An independent journal would be the only way that we could express ourselves. And that's something that Paul Salisbury and I understood. And after we met Gene England, found that he had the same point of view. We had a <laughs> We had a meeting one night in uh, a student uh, apartment in Escondido Village, and uh, we walked in and saw Gene and his people, and they eyed us very shiftily, and and, uh, and uh, we eyed them very shiftily, you know, like, here's the opposition, you know, who are these guys? Where did they come from? <laughs> and we found out, found out it was the law of duplication or the chance 
they had some of the same ideas. But the what began to happen, though, is that we had several more meetings, and it, it became clear that they didn't have as much experience as we did in actually in the mechanics of, of, uh, of actually putting out a journal. I certainly had from the Lampoon and these other experiences I had, and, and Paul had a lot of experience in um, old type styles and uh, designing a magazine and you know the whole the whole thing. Gene England had been editor of the Pen, the U of U literary magazine, and he wasn't too familiar with how to get out of the magazine. And I think his job there was to, you know, solicit articles and talk talk about poetry and literature. But still, he he, he had a, a wealth of information, and and we realized also he had something that I didn't have, and he had contacts in Salt Lake. I was an outlier. Phoenix. I had no, I had no contacts in Salt Lake, and at this magazine going, we were going to need some kind of connection with Salt Lake to somehow, in my view, allay the fears that we knew were going to grow about what this, what, what this group down in California was. We, I could imagine after a while that we would be targeted as these radicals in California, and that's where Gene played a wonderful role because he knew. Uh, not a lot, but he knew some of the general authorities. He was a good friend of Elder Hanks, very good friend of uh, of Duff Hanks, and uh, and that helped help. I, I knew general. I mean, was, I knew general general authorities, and we had one in the family and so forth. But but Gene just had more contacts. There. So uh, we kind of uh, divided things up. He was going to try to work the in Salt Lake, and I, I said, okay, I'd like to do a creative national board of editors. And so I, I pulled out all the stops of all the people I knew who were Mormon intellectuals and asked them to come on the board of the magazine, and, and Dallin Oaks did, and uh, well, Harvard professors did, and uh, Carlford Broderick, who was a big sociologist at Penn State, came on board. She was a big banker down in Phoenix, came on the board. And uh, we had we had uh, Chase Peterson, who at that time was just making the transition to become the dean of admissions at Harvard, came on the board. He'd been a friend of mine at Harvard. So at any rate, uh, I think, to uh, make a long story short, uh, it was within a few weeks of having these meetings twice a week that we decided that we were going to go ahead. There were, there were other people there, mainly graduate students, who joined with us. And we said we need to issue a manifesto or, or a, fly, a flyer announcing what we're going to do. And so we, there were Gene, Paul, and myself, and two other persons who put up $25 each. That's $125 to pay for the printing and um, mailing. Postage was cheap in those days of a flyer. But Ernest Wilkinson, this is fate had commissioned the year before a directory of LDS scholars all over the country. Okay? All we had to do was to take that directory and send our flyer to all those people. We, within a, what, within about two months, we had four or five hundred paid in advance subscriptions come to us before we even issued a magazine. It showed there was a fantastic need for this. Once people read our manifesto of what we wanted to do, 
So many people agreed with this in the Palestinian. And so we were able to actually get the first issue printed and paid for from the advanced subscription, which is really pretty unusual from a new publication. So, so there I was by chance at Stanford. In other words, I had two or four universities I could have accepted jobs at. I chose Stanford. And that was fate, I guess. I don't know, because there was England. And I really needed someone on the campus to help because Paul Salisbury became what we call our publication letter because um, we had the magazine published in Salt Lake City, and you need somebody on the scene there when you're publishing to work on the truths and everything to make sure he's going to... So luckily, I needed someone to work through that editorial experience right there at Palo Alto, and I was Gene. And Paul, my old mission buddy, was in Salt Lake. So so that meant we had a viable team to get this, uh, you know, to get this magazine off the uh, off the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll say one thing, too, in fairness to Stanford. Uh, Stanford was very helpful to us on this magazine. They let me use an, office, an empty office on the campus. We had editorial meetings every Tuesday night in a big seminar room that they gave us that usually it was used for graduate seminars and so forth, but they reserved it for us for every Tuesday night. So we had a very nice place to meet. We had an office on the campus. And furthermore, uh, they let us use typewriters, supplies, and a whole bunch of other things. In other words, we had an ethnic kind of informal subvention from Stanford. This is all before the break of BYU. So, so let me ask you about that then. So Stanford was actually offering you more resources to complete this journal than, say, a place like BYU, a higher institute of, of learning where intellectual well, thought should BYU be. BYU would have nothing to do with it because we were an independent. And see, I, we used to get letters saying, well, I would subscribe to your journal, but since the general authorities don't endorse it, I just don't think I can. Well, or they would write and say, why don't the general authorities endorse this? And I, I said, look, we're trying to be independent. I said, this way, uh, I said, the general authorities don't want to be responsible for what we say. I said, they prefer that we are totally independent, and that's what we're doing. See, the concept of being independent was unknown. For years, either you were with the church or if you published something that wasn't issued by the church, you were against the church. And that was it. That, that lingered for three or four of the first years we were publishing. So many people had that ancient idea. And I, of course, would give, go give talks. You and I talked all over the country. We were invited to four corners of the country to talk to study groups and various things. And we said, look, being independent is is a protection for everybody, and uh, it's something that exists. We are simply joining the group, joining other groups: the Jews, the Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, uh, the Presbyterians, the Methodists. They all have official publications, but they all have independent journals. They're not against the Methodist Church. We're not against the Catholic Church. But where people, lay people, can write articles and exchange ideas. I said, that's all we're doing. We're copying what already exists in the good old USA with all the other churches. So what we're doing is not some kind of wild idea. 
It's simply joining the other groups and doing something that has become normal and an accepted part of American life. Well, many people, when they heard that argument, began to change their mind. So you, you had mentioned that, and you'll have to refresh my memory, did you try and get in contact with general authorities to let them know what you were doing? and, and Yes, that- yes. Uh, I didn't do that because I, I, I was, well, for, for one thing, I was teaching. You know, I was a professor, and I was teaching. I couldn't get away that much. Gene Ingram was a graduate student. He was writing his dissertation, so he could fly to Salt Lake for three or four days and talk to people, which I, I couldn't do. I couldn't cut my classes that way. So, uh, and anyway, he had more contact. He had more contact. I had contact, but he had more contact. And so he went to see people like Nathan Elder Tanner, who I didn't know, who <laughs> was number three in the church. And he visited the course of Duff Hanks, and uh, I don't know, who knows, I mean, they have a list of four or five different uh, authorities. We also sent letters to all of the 12, I don't think we sent it to the 70, announcing that we were going to publish, that we are almost all of us were returned missionaries, that we were members of the church in good standing, and that we wanted to do something the church could be proud of, and something that would be useful to people who like to write and exchange ideas in the church, and at the present time, the uh, improvement era is not a place that solicits or prints these type of things, and whereas you know, I listed all the other churches that had independent publications were something that had joined the other, other group of American churches to do this. So, so yeah, we never, uh, we, we had letters from different authorities who wrote on different, different matters. Uh, let, me, let me say this, the biggest slap we ever had is when Stuart Udall was Secretary of the Interior. Stuart Udall is a very famous old Arizona family, one of the most illustrative uh, and revered Mormon families in Arizona. He became JFK's Secretary of the Interior. Uh, he wrote a letter to us, which he wanted us to print, uh, on his stage made Secretary of the Interior. Uh, I think he thought he was more important than he was. <laughs> saying, I, I, saying that I'm suggesting that the brethren should meet and, and, and have a conference and, and work out this thing about the priesthood with the blacks and so forth. And he said, I can't understand why having a conference and being all the relevant people and talk about it and make some decisions. And, and let's get beyond this in the next couple of months. Well, it fell to me to make the decision. And uh, I, I announced to the staff, I said, I'm not going to publish this because it, it's too prescriptive. And I said, our journal is not a prescriptive journal. It's not a goal to be prescriptive. But I said, on the other hand, uh, it's a free country, and if he wants to send us a letter to the editor, I don't see any reason why we can't print this. So we, we always mulled this over for a week or so, and finally that's what we did. And we'd all write about it for about a week, and then finally I talked to him on the phone several times. I said, well, I'm not going to give in. I said, that it's, we're, we're in a very edgy position here. Uh, I said, well, we've just started this journal a couple of years ago. We've gotten along just fine, and we've done it because we haven't tried to be prescriptive and tell the general authorities what to do. That's what you're doing. Now, I'm willing to take a chance and publish that as a letter to the editor, your opinion. And we'll put on the column, the opinions of people writing letters are their own and are not necessarily those of the staff or editors. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what happened. Uh, Udall finally backed down, and he wrote a letter 
that was much less fiery than his original letter. <laughs> and I thought, well, we solved the problem. But, you know, we got more flack about that, even though he toned his letter down. He got more flack about that than any other thing during my six years in the editorship that we really did. Like, uh, what kind of uh, resistance or uh, um, disapprovals did you receive? Nobody from the general authority, the general public, who wrote to us, and the general public said, you know, you're violating what you're trying to announce that you were not going to try to tell the general authorities what to do. And here you've got one of the, you know, he is a famous guy, and he's Secretary of the Interior. He's told that he has nobody to tell you the general authorities what to do. Hmm. So, uh, but we it didn't, you know, we, we didn't have people, I, I think we had a half dozen people cancel their subscription. But um, anyway, I, what I'm trying to say is that it, it left us that that was not a big flap, but that was the biggest flap we had. We didn't, we didn't have any big flaps. You know, you so the whole discussion on uh, Africans and blacks in the priesthood, you spent time in Africa, didn't you? Years, yeah. I wrote my doctoral dissertation for Colombia, and my first book is on Africa, African history, published by <laughs> the Stanford Press. <laughs> So, so how did how did that experience shape your view of the uh, the restriction for blacks in the priesthood, and, especially within the context of your time over there, and then um, the Secretary of the Interior letter, and all those different things going on during you know the Civil Rights era? I mean, I've got to imagine that that you must have felt a lot of emotions concerning that issue. Well, I did, and I suffered an immense amount of prejudice. Uh, at the hands of students to complain that why was I teaching at Stanford when my representative organization that disenfranchised blacks. And that's, that's another story, but uh, there's no question that uh, that I um, paid a pretty heavy price for being a Mormon instead. Uh, and, and I eventually lost my job there, directly related to this whole issue. And uh, I resurfaced the core very quickly as a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So you, uh, so you lost your, your job concerning that issue? That's, that's better than it's right. The fact that I was a Mormon is why I lost my job. So even though Stanford was giving now, you... Now listen, let me tell you, I, I wouldn't want this term to run. I went to UC Santa Barbara. The, the, the head of Claremont and Pomona College down south of L.A., Called me and gave him the number three man in Stanford when I was there. Well, she said, Could you come over and spend a couple of hours with me? He said, I was there when this case of yours came up, and he said, You got a raw deal. And my conscience says, I've got to talk to you and tell you what went on behind the scenes. So I did. I went over there, spent an afternoon, and my hair was raising, hair raised on my, <laughs> on my neck. And, um, he told me a lot of things, and I and I said, well, a friend of mine was thinking about maybe bringing a lawsuit for me, and he said, that's not going to work. He said, these papers that they have, their conversations, and the decisions they made are going to be put in places that no one will ever access them. And it's such a private university, they can't have a state of California, can't come in and say, we want to see these papers. No one can see these unless they're part of the establishment there, so... And so I had a very powerful man in my stake in Palo Alto who was a big attorney in San Francisco. He was already 
you know, to lean a little battle and all this stuff. And we, 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 we decided to scuttle. And it was open too many avenues of mischief. Uh, that wouldn't really help the church. And they convinced that it wouldn't, it wouldn't help me. One of the things that was, I find really, well, I won't say this, one of the people that was making decisions on me was, was an LDS guy, that he was not active. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I told that to they said, you mean old X there? He smokes a pipe every day, and he, he's going he's gonna to deem you. And I said, that's, that's right. <laughs> So, so one of the things you mentioned was that there was you did not want. To, I, I think your words were you did not want to be proscriptive to the church. You, there, there was it seemed like there were some subjects that you didn't want to cover. Is that right? There were some what? There were some subjects that you didn't want to cover for for dialogue. Is that right? I don't think so. I don't think we ever had a list of. Uh, we took the point of view. I know that people kept saying, well, "Why don't you write something?" And I really. Given my experience in Africa and all the studying I did, I could have written a very powerful article. But what are you going to do when you're editor of a publication? And the article I would write would probably get us in trouble. Mm. Get me in trouble and hence get dialogue in trouble. Mm-hmm. So it was very frustrating for me to take that point of view. But I mean, I, I, I could have said, well, I don't care about dialogue. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. But I'm proud to say that Gene and I both were the ones who solicited what, six or seven articles in dialogue that we both believe, those of us who were there at the time, believe that these are articles that some, not all, that some of the general authorities read and which helped them frame a view on this. I know it's revelation and so forth, but there were a lot of discussions going on before the revelation came and a lot of, a lot of meetings and so forth. And, we know that many of these articles were quoted and people read them. So I felt, even though I didn't come out and do it because I wanted to protect the magazine, that the magazine did great service in the cause of, of trying to get the priesthood issue uh, resolved favorably. Did you, and, and I don't know if you would have this information, but if you had to take a guess, how many general authorities possibly were reading dialogue at the time? Was this... Was it commonplace for them to read it? Was it only a select few? I I, I don't have any idea. I do know that uh, there were some who read it, uh, I know, fairly, well, we think fairly, right? Nobody ever admit to it. We kind of got these stories to the back. Someone who was an ex-secretary or someone was, you know, worked in the office and saw dialogue. <laughs> so it's something I couldn't with any accuracy speak to. But let me say this, dialogue was certainly read. I mean, it was, but we we sent subscriptions to every man of the 12. They had access to it because we felt it was, we said, we think it's important for you to find out what we're saying and not to find out from some other source, but to find out from the magazine itself that here's your free copy and free subscription. And we hope this will help you understand what we're trying to do and that we are not a threat to the church and we're all good members of the church and so forth and so on. Hey, Dad. Um, so do you feel like when, as you were creating, um, at least when when the issues were coming out, do you feel like you raised the bar in terms of the the to, to, to the dialogue of what people were talking about? It wasn't just people reading the 
the, uh, the, 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 the standard manuals, but do you, do you feel like they, that people became more interested and engaged and more active in chatting about the church? And do you feel like... Oh, oh yes. Uh, at that time, I don't know, that issue came out in 66, and for the next five or six years, it seemed like we had a host in cities around the country of study groups. And I, from what I could tell, the majority of these study groups were based on what they were reading in dialogue. Now, when Sunstone eventually came out, why Sunstone was quoted and so forth, and then when the Women's Exponent came out, that, that Claudia Bushman and uh, Laura Ulrich and others started, that became a focal point. So I think what dialogue started this, well, look, look, someone said, why did you start dialogue? And I said, well, if you want a one-sentence um, answer, it's because I felt it was time that, that that Mormon community have a place where its intellectuals could exchange opinions and get to know each other, something that does not exist at the present. And And I'd also submit that... So I, I, I'm a young guy. I, I'm only 30, and, and we have the the online world, and, and I think the blogs are there. I mean, and, and you've still got, you know, Journal of Mormon History still there, Dialogue, Sunstone, Exponent, yeah, yeah. you know, a lot of these other periodicals. But <clears throat> to be honest, I, I worry a little bit. I, I stumbled upon most of these things uh, on the Internet about seven years ago, and, and that's kind of where I, I learned all these I learned that these discussions have been taking place for a while, but I, yeah. to be honest, sometimes I look at my peer group and I say, guys, do you not see this this whole expansive world of, of thought out there? I mean, there is so much more out there, but, and that's why I was really interested with what you were saying about, some people were saying you're going to get excommunicated because there's there's that same thought, although and now it seems like our, our phrase of choice is, well, that's not pertinent to my salvation, so I'm not going to, I don't need to know about that, to which I almost want to say, it, it kind of is, because it makes the whole Mormon experience that much more rich. I mean, I, I'm amazed at these similarities I'm seeing between my generation and, and what you were going through during that time. Yeah, yeah, no, it's funny, the um, professional historians do not do, but history often goes in circles, you know, I mean, things come back, uh, <laughs> repeat, history repeats itself. Again, <laughs> professional historians don't like to say that, but it, it, it's true, though. Dad, hey, let me ask you another question. Do you feel that, that once... Um once you were, you, you had mentioned that you were sending a free a, a free copy to to the twelve. Is that correct? Right, and I think the presiding bishop put, and I think we did for a while. That the seven, then the seventies began to expand. You know, so much we really couldn't afford to send it to all the seven. I think we said to the So here's so here's my question. So do you feel that once you began publishing these things and once these got out and these study groups were starting to happen and it sounds like you really raised the bar in terms of the discussion that people were oh, having I think at the we time? Did. I think we did, yes. Um, do you feel that the, that, the, that the general authorities were then – I mean, it was this kind of in a, maybe in a very roundabout way. Was this kind of a notice to the general authority that there were intellectuals, that, that this wasn't – I mean, if you look at maybe historically – I. I would guess that early on in the church, many of many of the people in the church were maybe not as educated as later on they were, right. and, and and so in the forties, fifties, and sixties, when you've got and, and your out migration pro, uh, project would probably um, 
maybe shed a lot more light on this, but as yes, the forties and the forties, fifties and sixties, you're getting a lot more children that rather than just being on the farm, they're actually becoming more educated. They're going to places yep. like you did to Harvard and they're coming yep. up through the ranks and they're, they're beginning to question instead of saying, well, okay, I, I, I respect the, the authority. I respect, respect the priesthood. I, I respect the, the church. However, I'd like to know a little bit more, and I mean, it sounds to me like you were at at the right place at the right time in a lot of in a lot of ways because it seemed like people were, as you mentioned, um, were thirsty or hungry for this. But but at the same time, maybe it was publications like Dialogue that that got that the that the general authorities began to read where they started to say, "This is our notice. This is this is our notice that we're on." That 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 we're on, you know, we need to be on high alert here to 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 that people are are yeah. listening and they're I reading. I, I wouldn't. I have no. I have no evidence of that. But I, my guess is, uh, my guess is uh, that that that's exactly true. But I think before opinion out in the general public was not much concerned because there's no place to publish it. Maybe her ex gave a talk or something. But when you suddenly have magazines being newsletters and magazines being published, well, again, that's a whole different thing. And uh, so, yes, I think what you're saying is absolutely true. And, and I'd also add, it seemed like there was a high academic standard that you wanted, coming from the academic backgrounds that you had, there was a high academic standard. This wasn't going to, you know, the blogs are nice. I really like reading a lot of the blogs that are out there. But at the same time, it seems like they don't carry the same kind of credibility as someone coming through with with strong academic a strong academic background and being able to create a valid argument with valid footnotes and well researched and well written, well edited, well edited. I mean, I, I think that plays a big factor in maintaining that credibility compared to, you know, like you said, some of the amateur periodicals that you had seen, which just by their amateur nature, uh, you know lacked that credibility whereas dialogue comes off the press it looks professional it's got this nice background and and it it's well done and all of a sudden that sets a standard for everybody else it seems like i think that's i think that's true i think what's happened though is over the years the general populace in other words this has become more of a popular subject this and i think by the general public wants to have more of a role in it they have Maybe guys have ideas, but they don't know quite how to express them, and they don't have a Yale degree to have, uh, uh, you know, the, the work published, and so they go to blogs and so forth. And I, I think I, that's unruly, but I think it's great because it gives more people a chance to get their ideas out. And if I were general authority, my gosh, I think I'd have my have a, one or two assistants in the office reading the journals, reading the blog to really find out what's going on. <laughs> well, the rumors that I hear are that they're reading everything right now, which is uh, yeah. kind of making people a little scared because there have been some people that have gotten phone calls and that their bishops have been notified. And, and uh, you know, it's I, I think it's it seems like a double-edged sword. On, on one side, I think that you're right. You should be, in a sense, it's almost like taking the temperature of, of the general populace to say, okay, what, what things are concerning to them? So from the you know, religious aspect, they could pray about it and say, okay, uh, you know, headlines right now, the uh, uh, ordination of women is a big topic. A lot of people are talking about it. Maybe that's something that they contemplate and pray about. Uh, At the same time, I also worry, though, that it becomes a little Orwellian in the sense that you've got the, you know, big brother, the church kind of 
watching you, and and it. it yeah, well, I think the women's thing is uh, makes uh, some of these other issues they've had in the past pale in comparison, because it it affects half more than half of the members of the church. You know, I mean, just in sheer volume of people, it's not like a minority, the blacks, I mean, a minority and so forth. So, you know, how's that going to be worked out? I, I certainly don't don't know, but it may be something that drags on for a long time, or maybe the general authorities, the easiest thing would be to elevate their Relief Society boards and, and mutual boards and so forth and make them more a part of the establishment that might... That might uh, uh, make some people happier, and uh, they could do that quite easy without, uh, you know, saying that you can lay hands on and, and give a blessing, blessing to somebody. But I don't know. I think I think most of the women women who are steering this thing that, that wouldn't be enough. Though I don't think so. Well, let me ask you about that because that's I mean that's another thing that's kind of counterculture i don't want to say that dialogue was counterculture but to to the general membership you you said that a lot of people were wanting to know is this okay is this kosher i I don't think that for some of those people who are asking those questions i don't know if dialogue would have been right for them but for the people that did read it do you think it inspired people to stay it allowed them to know oh listen i can i admit before i die i'm gonna write an article on that and I discussed with Gene England how many, if you go through our files, how many people say, your, your journal and your articles have, have, have saved my membership in the church. I, now that I can find someone to talk to and have a dialogue with, I can stay in the church. Before then, there was no one to talk to. I, I, I knew there might be people out there somewhere who had questions like I do. Uh, we opened up the dialogue files that uh, the archives are at the University of Utah, if uh, it would be interesting to get a grant and hire a couple of people to go through this and, and call out all the letters that that that, that state that uh, their experience of dialogue has been very positive. This this might be a bit of a softball question, but I, I could see some of the more um, conservative and almost ultra orthodox people saying, "No, we don't need to talk about this. These these subjects don't need to be talked about." But why do you think? Why do you think dialogue helped people to stay? Why Why do you think it was meaningful for them that these discussions were were happening and and that they know that that they're basically that they're not alone? Why do you think that was important? Well, I think it was important that they were not alone. That there are other people out there who had similar questions, similar views, or maybe uh, are asking the kind of questions that that they and see. Many of these people like letters of oh, I'm. I'm um, communicating now with X and Y, and we are all dialogue readers, and we have share some ideas here and so forth. So I think, I think when you have a, a focal point, as I think dialogue became, and as Sunstone and Women's Exponent became, that it generates a, it generates a communication between people. Let me let me ask you uh, this last question from me, and then I'll see if George has any final questions, but. When, when you look back on your involvement with dialogue and your involvement with uh, Mormon studies, what what are you most uh, really from from that point and and your involvement in that that publishing community? What are you most proud of? Well, I guess probably reiterate what uh, I just said. I'm very proud that the magazine we started to fulfill a need. A, a new product has to be a, a need for a new product. Necessity is the mother of invention. The necessity was to have something that would handle the communication problem. 
in those days, uh, there was no internet, so forth and so on. So a magazine was a logical way for people to communicate with each other. And even, you know, we're coming up to the 50th anniversary next year, I, and, and who knows how long dialogue will last, I think it's a very useful purpose in sparking a lot of interest. I'm not giving it credit for all this, but I think it helps spark interest in a lot of people. And uh, certainly, I think, has given a stature in the non-Mormon world of having a, a very preeminent refereed journal that is quoted by the New York Times, it's quoted by all of the newspapers of the world. Not quoted by the inside. <laughs> Not yet. Quote. We can still hope, right? <laughs> yeah, we can still hope. But, uh, but the rest of the, of the, of the community, uh, you know, dialogue is readily. So I'm, I'm, very, I'm very proud of that. And, and as I said, I, my goal was to try to get people in a way where they could communicate to each other. And that was the mechanism at the time. Now we're trans, you know, we're moving into a new phase of blogs and everything else. But that's what I'm probably most, uh, I'm most proud of. That I and and and, and, and secondly, I, I think it helped us retain. I, I can't prove this, but I mean, that's my my guess. I think it helped us retain a lot of intellectuals in the church because it would be easy to lose many intellectuals. And I think thank him that we had um, a, uh, a president in a, um, in the, of the church who understood the media. Uh, and uh, I, I just wish we had that. But no, man, I wish he, he was still alive. <laughs> so I got one last question for you, Dad, before we before we cut this off. Um, and and I would imagine you probably would have other things to say, and maybe we can pick those up some other point. But. Um, <clears throat> In terms of the articles and in terms of what you put in on a week to week basis, did you, or not, pardon me, it came out quarterly, is that not, correct? Not your quarterly, yeah, pardon four me. Days. Not, not a week to week, yeah, so quarterly. Did most of the articles or most of the submissions, did those come from Utah or outside of Utah or half and half? No, 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 no not at all. We, we had a national audience. People were subscribing. Our subscription list very quickly showed it was a national audience, and the submissions of manuscripts showed it was a it was a national publication from the get go. It was not just a you know, and and that's something that I think aggravated the people at BYU study, <laughs> and and uh, they uh, eventually changed that magazine. It originally was only for BYU professors to print articles they couldn't get printed some other place, and so. BYU studies printed nothing but BYU professors' articles. Well, once they began to see the light, then they opened up the journal to anybody could submit things and make it more of a, a general sort of a, a journal. So, dialogue, dialogue brought that about, <laughs> which I think was a it was, it was a good thing to have a, a recognized journal of the church that anybody could submit an article to. You couldn't do that before before dialogue. Did you find that the articles that you received from California and New York were substantially different than what you received from, say, Utah and Idaho and the Mormon Quarter? I there there is some there is some truth in that. I I think that I think the best thing to say is that there were differences of opinion across the whole country. We get articles Tennessee, we get articles from Montana. I mean, we were stunned sometimes. At, People who like to us who were 
obviously very, very isolated people. But they said, we prayed and knew that someday that you people dialogue would be out there and, and we can send an article here that we've written and right. nobody here knows anything about it but we're sending it to you. And sometimes the articles weren't publishable, but many times they were. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Wes, for coming on. I really appreciate you taking some time and, and talk with me. I think this is a, to be honest, I think it's a, a fascinating subject that we need to we need to kind of remember where this started from because, like you said, I think history repeats itself. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks, George, for uh, hosting me here at your home and setting everything up and, and uh, kind of planning all this. I, I appreciate it. Brant, thank you very much for taking an interest in getting this online. It's, it's, it means a lot to my father and I. Thank you. No problem. And, and everyone, thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again after a while. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.